Welcome to Brandon Nevat. Uh, we're delighted to be joined by Bob Fisher from Texas State University. Uh, Bob is the author of a forthcoming book on animal ethics, and we're going to be talking about uh, animal welfare from a range of different perspectives today. Uh, Bob, would you like to start with a thought experiment? A Siberian tigress goes through a uh, perfectly healthy pregnancy and has three healthy cubs. Um, and that very same day, the zoo director decides to have those three cubs um, euthanized, uh, their bodies frozen and shipped to a lab elsewhere in Germany where they were dissected uh, for research. And the reason this happened was because during the pregnancy, uh, they discovered that the father of these cubs was actually not a pure Siberian tiger. There was some uh, more complicated ancestry. And uh, that was enough to make it so that those cubs could not be used for subsequent breeding. So what zoos do, and this is the, you know, the general policy of uh, zoos that meet various important international accreditation standards, is that they trade animals around between zoos to preserve uh, viable breeding populations. So we wanna make sure that we have viable offspring. We wanna maintain sufficient genetic diversity among the animals. And so the way we do that is by trading these animals around, but those cubs couldn't be traded because they weren't pure Siberian uh, tigers. And so they were worthless uh, from the breeding perspective. That raised this question, well, you know, can we afford to keep them? Can we afford to, uh, you know, have them on display regardless? But the answer to that question is pretty clearly not. Tigers are not cheap to have. They eat enormous amounts. Um, they require larger habitats. Their um, veterinary care, of course, is difficult and complicated in various ways. And so uh, the choice was made uh, to euthanize. They actually had considered aborting um, during the pregnancy, but decided that might be too much of a risk to the mother. And so they waited until birth, euthanized, and froze for research. And I, I share this story not to defend any particular conclusion, but rather sort of put on the table this issue that um, might not be as obvious to us when we start thinking about zoos as conservation entities and as entities that are invested in um, promoting the good for animals. They seem to be particularly concerned with promoting the good for species rather than um, the good for individuals, because you know, presumably uh, for those three cubs, uh, their, their lives did not go as well as possible uh, being euthanized on day one, whereas they could have been, you know, were sufficient resources invested. And that just pushes us to consider, okay, well, what exactly, what sort of institution are we talking about here? Um, what are its values, in fact? Are those values that we can defend once we start taking animals seriously as individuals? Um, and, you know, long-term, like, what's, what's the goal for for institutions of this kind? What should we want insofar as we take animals seriously um, for places like zoos? How do we want them to operate? What goals should we try to get them to adopt? So I'll throw that out there as a place to start. So much to discuss. Very curious to see where we go. So it seems like, imagine we had a program for having diversity of human beings. And we said, you know, the Papua New Guineans look like they're kind of uh, on the border of extinction. So let's set up some reserves where we can save them from extinction and we can get people to donate. And uh, one way to do that is to have people sort of, um, 
let's say, trade in Papua New Guinean babies. Um, you know, there's some wealthy Americans who say, you know, we would just love to have a sauteed Papua New Guinean and we'll pay enormous amounts for it. And this would be really good for protecting the community overall. We might think that's immensely repugnant because you're not treating the individual uh, in the way that they, you know, ought to be treated. So we don't buy this idea that you you could uh, sacrifice some individuals for the sake of maintaining a cultural group or a language group. But as you point out in the sort of conversation, the conservation case or the zoo cases, that's exactly what we're doing. So we say this thing doesn't matter in and of itself. What we care about is diversity. Um, and I suppose the question is why we care about it. So is it totally anthropocentric? In other words, we like the idea of there being this variety of animals around. And some of that means there must be a pure animal. You know, so in other words, we say, oh, we don't want the, the, the tiger that's tainted by some bad blood. So we want the, you know, the pure breed one. Um, and maybe with, with dogs, we think, well, we want to have a kind of manufactured breed. So pugs have these really cute looking things and we can engineer them in a manner that will lead to a lot of their suffering. Pugs often have breathing problems, but we enjoy them. They're fun for us. Um, is that okay? In other words, if we say these things don't matter in of themselves at all, they're kind of like moving works of art. They just have aesthetic value and that's how we should treat them. Yeah, great. So there, there's a lot to tackle there. So the first thing is, this is a really common test that people employ in discussions about animals um, who think that there's something wrong with um, speciesism. And so just, you know, super quick recap. This thought here is, hey, look, um, in general, we should not make distinctions between beings based on arbitrary, morally irrelevant categories. So, you know, I shouldn't just be like, you know what, uh, I've always liked uh, brunettes better than blondes. And so the brunettes in my class, they all get A's, uh, the blondes get D's, and that's the way we're going to hand out the grades, right? Um, hair color seems morally irrelevant in the grade giving arrangement. Likewise, uh, lots of people have argued species is morally irrelevant. So individual capacities like um, intelligence, like um, the capacity for agency, like the ability to feel pain, like th those sorts of things, all of those things matter morally. But um, but the pure biological fact of belonging to a particular species, that isn't the kind of thing that's morally salient and distinguishes between uh, individuals. You can't just say, um, well, you're human and you're not, therefore, you need to point to some other capacity that distinguishes these individuals, right? And when you started talking, Mark, what you did was you said, well, let's essentially just come up with a scenario where we replace the animals with humans and see whether we judge it the same way. Um, and if we don't judge it the same way, then there's sort of like a presumption that like maybe there's something speciesist here, right? That was the strategy that you were employing. And, um, and in general, that seems like kind of a decent way of going, at least as a first pass. The reply is always gonna be, but oh, but look, aren't, aren't there some kind of differences between human and non-human animals that explain why, yeah, we should not promote, you know, uh, the Papua New Guinean ethnicity um, at the expense of the rights of individual Papua New Guineans, um, whereas that's okay to do in the case of non-human animals. 
and you might think that like, well, you know, maybe you think that, you know, humans are agents and have rights, whereas animals are not morally, you know, moral agents and so don't necessarily have rights. Some people have that kind of view. Humans have an interest in continued existence. Maybe animals don't have those kinds of desires for the future that would um, make it, you know, the, such that death is bad for them. And so that's why we shouldn't be killing off or otherwise, you know, um, engaging in eugenics to promote uh, human um, human ethnicities or races, whereas we it's okay to do that in the case of animals. So, I mean, the first big question we're gonna have to tackle is how on earth do we think about there being any relevant differences that would explain why the sorting um, or the, you know, the attempt to preserve um, species or groups of any kind could be a mistake in the case of human beings or not a mistake in the case of animals. That being, so that's the first thing to say. Second thing to say is, I actually think that people's intuitions about the human case are complicated. So it does seem pretty clear that people do value um, the, the preservation of particular people groups. Um, they often don't think it should violate rights, but depending on the culture, they often do think that interests that we take to be really fundamental could be sacrificed for that. So, you know, the cartoon version of this is think about old Italian grandma who is just determined that, you know, her daughter marry another good Italian boy um, because we want to keep, we want to have more Italian grandbabies, right? Um, or great grandbabies. Um, well, you know, she might even be willing to like run roughshod. This is like, you know, the plot of many movies, uh, run roughshod over her daughter's desires to try to promote that uh, goal. And it sounds like, you know, what we might think of, oh, you've got some right to choose your partner. Grandma doesn't really think so. Uh, you don't have a right to choose a partner who's not Italian. You got to have one like that. Um, Italians, of course, are not the only people who care about these sorts of things. Um, but, you know, that's um, that stereotype, I think, does have some basis where people, they think group identity matters in some way that, um, that they're willing to sacrifice other goods, even goods that we might think of as kind of central to autonomy for the sake of preserving it. So that's the second thing, just to say, um, it isn't so clear that the human and non-human animal cases are you know, entirely different. And the last thing just about the, the really interesting point, like, is this just, you know, are animals just artworks to us? And we're just, we're dealing with this kind of like massive anthropocentrism and the way that we're conceiving of these things. Part of me thinks that like ever being willing to sacrifice the individual for the group, given that species are not like species can't feel pain, right? Tiger as a species never suffers. Um, it's only individuals uh, who can have that kind of loss. So part of me thinks, oh yeah, that's, that's a good reason to be worried about this shift toward, um, toward the species, to valuing the species at the expense of the individual. But you know, I can at least get myself in the mindset of thinking, well, you know, evolution is a horrible, terrible, disturbing, brutal process. And yet it has produced these remarkable forms. And there is something incredibly impressive about the diversity of life. And anybody who spent any time studying biology can just be amazed, you know, when you when you think about the the differences between, you know, um, the octopus and the whale shark and you know the chinchilla 
and the gazelle, and you just can be sort of awed that we live in a world that has wrought this much diversity. And I don't know that it's, it is an aesthetic response and a kind of aesthetic appreciation, but it might not be just that, um, or insofar as it is just aesthetic, it might be kind of an especially important aesthetic response. And so I, I don't wanna be cavalier about compromises to animal welfare as the initial case suggests, but I also don't wanna dismiss that valuing as wholly misguided. So Bob, listening to you and Mark debate this, it's what, what's going through my head is what are the tools that the two of you are using here? Because in the human case, there's two main tools that ethicists use. It's consequentialism and deontology. So consequentialism is the view that an action is right just in case it has the best consequences for everyone involved. And deontologists think that an action is right just in case um, it satisfies certain duties and doesn't violate other duties. Um, now, when it comes to consequences, um, we can make sense of that in relation to animals because those consequences are often related to um, suffering. So, you know, when it comes to animal suffering, we want consequences that don't involve animal suffering. But when it comes to deontology or duties, it's not entirely clear what the rights and duties are in relation to animals. You know, do animals have rights the way humans have rights? Um, and what are those? Um, and if we can't make sense of deontology, then do we just fall back to consequentialism? I'm not particularly sympathetic to rights theory myself, but if I were a rights theorist, I don't think I have any special problem with rights for animals. Um, and the reason is that, you know, look, any plausible theory of rights is gonna to have to explain how rights extend to non-agents, individuals who lack autonomy, right? Since there are lots of humans that we wanna say are covered by rights, um, but lack that property, right? So, um, you know, infants, the senile, those with severe cognitive disabilities, those in permanent vegetative states, et cetera, et cetera. We often still wanna claim rights for them, um, but they can't claim those rights themselves. They can't understand those rights. They don't uh, act on rights. They don't necessarily have any obligations themselves, right? All of those things just, you know, vanish. And yet, you know, we, we are okay with the idea of extending uh, rights to those individuals. So whatever story we tell has to be compatible with that. Given that, it actually becomes quite difficult to explain why rights would not get extended um, beyond the human to the non-human. And I think, you know, if you think about rights as just something like um, a presumption that your welfare will not be traded off uh, just to aggregate benefits to others, uh, smaller benefits to others. It's a protection against that kind of aggregative argument where it's like, hey, don't cut off my foot to spare each of you a headache, even if you know, when you sort of put the headaches together or enough headaches together, maybe that's as bad as, um, you know, as losing uh, an appendage. If rights are there to block that kind of aggregation, well, then there's no obvious reason why that, that same kind of deontic principle couldn't be extended more broadly. So I, I, I want to resist, I want to resist that. I will also say though, although you're absolutely right that um, the standard tools that people often bring to bear in these conversations are, you know, utilitarian uh, or, you know, consequentialists of some stripe and a broadly deontological 
point of view. You know, I often think that it's a bad idea to start with theory when we're looking at these kinds of cases and that you should almost always start in the middle, like dive into the empirical details, learn as much as you can about what's actually happening in this particular practice. Try to figure out the network of relationships and felt responsibilities and the identities that are at play and the system of incentives and so on and so forth and start sort of philosophizing in the middle. And yeah, at some point we might like surface from that process and talk about things at the level of theory um, and say, oh, well, yeah, if you were a consequentialist now, having done all that analysis, we might reach this or that conclusion. But I think like we get there sort of, you know, toward the end and maybe not at all. And it's often best just to think in terms of, well, how, how far could we get without switching to the level of theory? Because that just introduces a whole new level of things that we disagree about. And if we're trying to make progress on moral questions, adding new sources of disagreement, generally not going to be that useful. So that's how I tend to think about these things. But then I worry that your discussion is going to purely be appealing to intuition, right? So all the time you, you, you're raising cases, getting people's intuitions, and then forming some sort of conclusion from those intuitions and then moving on to another case and building up a framework that way. But there is a danger in that, um, is that, of course, someone listening to that process, that series of, of intuitive arguments could say, but hold on, that's bad induction, right? It's hasty generalization. You haven't considered all possible examples with different intuitions. Um, so, you know, I'm not sure what the general intuition would be in, in uh, the Siberian tiger case. I'm guessing the intuition generally would be that they shouldn't have euthanized those, um, those cubs. Um, now, the person who, who, who says, no, but they should have euthanized those cubs will say, well, that's not an indicative case. Let me give you another one where, my, where the intuition goes my way. So now you've got these two different arguments with opposing intuitions, um, and you've reached nowhere. You've reached no solid conclusion. Whereas if you start from theory, um, then at least that delimits the number of cases you can present. Starting from theory is a bit like saying, you know, let, let's start from, from the vantage point of, of one theory that has been historically influential in systematizing intuitions, um, insofar as we pick a particular theory, like, oh, we're going to be consequentialist today uh, and consider how the arguments go. And you know, that's fine. I think there are lots of people who find themselves able to be convinced by particular moral theories. Um, but now I'm just reporting biographical, autobiographical details rather than arguing. But I've just never been that kind of person. Like, I've never found myself to be the kind of person to be like, oh, yeah, this is the theory that makes most sense to me. I look at all the theories and I think, oh, yeah, all pretty good. Lots going for them. Pretty interesting. Um, could see ways of modifying them so that I would find each one even more plausible. Could see ways of modifying them so they'd be less plausible, right? Uh, and if you find yourself sort of betwixt and between and not really committed to the level of theory, then you know you have choices. You can say, well, we're going to keep marching on, uh, and we're just going to like, um, you know, assign credences to each of the moral theories and like turn the crank and try to figure out well what what should we do given that we've, you know, sort of um, uh, probabilify our moral uncertainty. And, you know, there's a, there are people who take that 
you know, kind of perspective. And I think there, there's something to be said for it. My own view is to say, oh, well, look, maybe we should just start in the middle and tolerate the fact that, yeah, we are vulnerable to exactly those kinds of critiques, but we don't really have anything better to do. We don't have a better strategy given that sorting out the theoretical issues is so hard. That being said, like, let me make my problem way worse than you made it. So like, I think saying what you said, Jason, is great uh, as a challenge in the human case, when, you know, when we're mostly thinking about cases that involve humans, but it's actually way worse in cases involving animals because our intuitions about animals are just, there, there's lots of reasons to be suspicious about our judgments. We're often really confused about what's in the best interest of animals. We think we know and, um, and because the signs of what's good for animals can be ser seriously misleading we can misjudge that very badly. So, I mean, to make this concrete, you know, um, I'm working on this, I've been doing a bunch of research about the practice of toe clipping, which I'm sure is something that you guys do on a regular basis. Uh, not toenail clipping, actually clipping the toes, right? Not of humans, but of um, uh, reptiles and amphibians. So here's the situation. You're doing a population study Right? You want to know how many of this particular kind of lizard are in this region. So what do you do? Well, you catch a bunch of them. You cut off some specific pattern of their digits. right? Um, and then you release them. You wait a certain amount of time. You catch a bunch of them again. And then there's an algorithm that you can use to take the percentage that you caught that have the toe clipping marks to extrapolate the general population numbers. right? And, you know, you can, if you do this a couple of times, you can triangulate and get a reasonably reliable population estimate. It's a standard method. Well, should we clip the toes of these lizards, right? I mean, is that, does the, is the value of the knowledge sufficient to justify cutting off um, these, uh, these digits? And part of you, you know, you, you might just have this intuitive gut reaction against this. And that seems like a totally reasonable thing to have. But actually like sorting out how bad it is for these lizards to have their toes clipped is really difficult. And the empirical research go, it, it's, it's, um, it's not at all unified. So you can find studies that suggest, you know, um, much higher stress hormone levels as a result of toe clipping, ones that suggest by contrast, hey, actually it's it's lower than um, simply being confined for a short period of time. That the clipping itself doesn't seem to, you know, increase it much at all over the base level of stress that the animal is experiencing. You can find some studies that suggest fairly high mortality where, hey, look, for each toe you clip, the probability of that animal coming back, you know, goes down by 9% or 18% or whatever it is um, after the first toe. Uh, and then you can find some studies that find like very low mortality impacts, right? And so because the empirical issue is so messy, what can look like something that's just obviously bad for welfare, um, you know, may not actually be that bad for welfare. And so even if we're all, you know, even if we're right that, hey, there's something that's not optimal, that doesn't necessarily show that it's that bad, right? In fact, and it could be a pretty minor thing. And so 
to go back to the initial point you were making, Jason. So like, if, if we, if we say, oh, well, you know, how much should we trust these intuitions that people make in animal cases? Um, and you're worried that actually we're just not that good at making judgments about what's good for animals. Not only do we have the scope of cases problem, we have the issue of trusting the intuitions in the individual situation. Only thing I can say about that is like, that's a call for doing more animal welfare science, not necessarily a call for switching to theory. Um, but that's the, you're right that it's a tough issue. So I want to touch on two topics. The first is this question about what do you do when you have mutually incompatible worldviews? So there's some sense in which fundamentally the deontologist and the consequentialist disagree with each other. And one way that this is sort of seen to play out uh, is in legal settings. So you can imagine that you've got um, an appeals court with lots of different judges who hold differing views about the ultimate questions, um, but they agree on lower level principles. And so if you think about someone like uh, Derek Parfit, you know, his, his final work is on trying to reconcile grand theories. So and he sort of says, well, we could really try and cash out, you know, utilitarian ideas with the ontological ones and contractarian ones. And one way the applied ethicist can think about it is to say, well, maybe there's the series of hoops that you've got to go through. And it might be that we don't have to resolve the ultimate question, but everybody agrees that, um, you know, torturing a kitten for fun uh, is wrong either because... Uh, the, the suffering or because you think this being ought to be afforded a right, um, you know, those sorts of things. Um, the second thing I wonder about, you, you mentioned this, what can we do to animals for the sake of knowledge? And the case you give about the lizard is interesting. And I wonder about other kinds of benefits. So we're in a situation now where, you know, we're facing a global pandemic. Um, you know, we want vaccines, we want, let's say, you know, medicines that could treat people. Uh, and it's a traditional part of science to experiment on animals. Um, and the idea is that we hope we'll yield some games. Now, first of all, I suppose one of the questions is, you know, are there any limits on what we can do to animals to get to get some medicinal benefits? And are there other kinds of gains, let's say, um, in the case of beauty products. So we're trying to test out, you know, a new shampoo. And so we put the shampoo in the bunny's eyes. Um, do we think, well, we have enough shampoo. Do we need to continually torture these rabbits so we can get this marginal benefit? Um, are there limitations? What are the kinds of principles that you use uh, in those sort of testing cases? Yeah, I mean, my view is that like anything that allows you to have more illustrious hair is gonna be justified. Right, so that just should be a starting point for the dialogue. Um, no, so so I mean the experimentation case. That's right. That's exactly right. Um, I mean, once you've seen those locks, what else is there really to discuss, ethically speaking? The experimentation case is interesting. You know, if we're going back and we're you know trying to rely on the moral theories, you know, you might actually think that this is a these cases are either. <laughs> A reason not to be a consequentialist, or that just shows that these are these cases are not particularly big deals. Because when you look at the number of animals that we're testing on, it's actually a relatively small number. I mean, it's not totally trivial. I don't want to minimize it. Um, actually, estimating the populations itself is difficult, and there's a lot to say about it. And I've tried to say some of that in the book that you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, but. The point is that when you look at, you know, if we are trying to address a pandemic where we're talking about, you know, 
literally billions of people being affected by some disease. Um, the number of animals that, you know, are going to be affected by this in research, they, you know, certainly in the thousands, maybe in the tens of thousands, um, very outside possibility in the hundreds of thousands. But, you know, that's, that's what we're talking about. Um, and their lives are not going to be good lives. But if we're talking about the overall you know, impact on the human population, it will turn out that if you want to maximize utility, you should do the experiments. You can, of course, react to in two ways. You can just see that as vindicating, or you can question the, 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 the consequentialism that led you there. And of course, that's what lots of people do that take that second horn. They say, well, look, this is, this is the reason or a reason to think that animals have rights. We don't accept that kind of reasoning, you know, when it comes to experiment, like think about the Tuskegee experiments, you know, where these men were given syphilis and, um, you know, they all eventually died as a result and they weren't given, um, you know, uh, the appropriate sort of care for that. And people think those kinds of experiments are, you know, the definition of what's wrong with, um, a consequentialist kind of reasoning where, where we sort of say, well, the, the many benefits uh, to the group outweigh the cost to the few. And insofar as we reject that kind of reasoning in those cases that maybe, you know, we should reject it in the animal cases as well. Insofar as you are sympathetic to that kind of rights-based approach, um, you know, you're going to have to, you know, you're going to, you're going to being very critical of animal experimentation, but the actual frameworks that are used to adjudicate between legitimate and illegitimate um, experimental designs or protocols, research protocols, um, are just so far from the, uh, the rights-based framework that while it's interesting to think about, does the rights view permit this or not? Um, in one sense, it's, you know, I think it's a, a bad thing to focus our energies there. Um, we should instead focus on the kinds of frameworks that are actually invoked in research contexts and see, well, how far can we push those in animal sympathetic directions? Um, or, you know, insofar as we're interested in advocating for animals, or insofar as we're just interested in the issue in the abstract, what exactly do those principles apply, imply uh, for, for, um, for, for particular research protocols? Um, the big framework, of course, is like the three R's framework. Three R's framework says, that um, if you would get some significant benefit from, from the research, then it's gonna be permissible as long as you have tried to do three things. You have tried to reduce the number of animals that you use, replace um, non or animals with non-animal models. So if you can do research on something other than an animal, do that. And then refine your methods. So um, make them as, um, you know, as, remove as much pain as possible from the process. Uh, so the three R's of course are designed to allow you to do research, but they place these constraints and then you can go and ask, well, was there any other way of doing this? Can we do it with fewer animals? Can we do it in a way that has a smaller impact on welfare? And then we can start saying, well, you know, even if we think pandemic, you know, um, or vaccine creating research in the context of a pandemic is justified, was this particular program justified? Was this particular set of protocols justified? Just by the way, I wonder with those three R's, suppose um, humans develop inter interplanetary travel and suppose that we wanna know what happens when you, when you nuke a planet so much that everything dies off. Um, 
we want to see what happens, right? It seems like there's no way to, to replicate that experiment uh, in a way that would reduce suffering, uh, that would refine it in such a way that we don't have to nuke a whole planet um, and that we can reduce the number of animals involved. It seems like, you know, according to the three R's, we can go and nuke that planet uh, and, and see what happens. Yeah, so according to the three R's themselves, strictly interpreted, you could certainly reach that conclusion. So typically they're supplemented by some other assumptions, which are that, which I hinted at you know, earlier, which is the thought that like, there's gotta be some significant benefit to the research in the first place. We wanna start a plan from scratch, right? So we wanna, we wanna, we wanna see what happens if we just destroy everything and see, you know, even yeah. though nothing, no organisms survive, could, could some life percolate up? I mean, there is genuine disagreement about this, about what, what how, how valuable knowledge has to be um, you know, for, for particular protocols to be justified. So, you know, I think that if you took this one animal researcher, they would of course be horrified and say, well, no, nothing we would ever say would ever commit us to something like that. Um, you know, philosophers of course will want to push and say, actually your view does commit you to that. Um, I think it's quite difficult to know how to adjudicate those kinds of disputes, but this brings us to the second thing, which is, you know, look at the way the culture of animal experimentation has changed. We used to be comfortable with things like, so maybe you've heard about the, the maternal deprivation studies that Harry Harlow did. So Harry Harlow was a researcher uh, in Wisconsin and, you know, several decades ago. And what he did was he took um, uh, baby monkeys away from their mothers and he created these like wire mothers um, that were formed to, like, to look like mothers, um, but that, and then he created other ones that, you know, um, had like some soft parts to them. And he created some that had, um, you know, that had fake breasts and could feed the, the baby monkeys. And what he did, he was just interested in seeing, well, what's the effect of like taking away, um, uh, an, you know, these kinds of supports from animals. And it, you know, it turns out you can really screw up some animals by <laughs> depriving them of their mothers. Uh, it's really bad for them. Um, and we learned all sorts of interesting things about, um, about just how awful it is for developing primates to be deprived of that kind of uh, loving connection. No uh, institutional animal care and use committee, and I cook, uh, would approve that research now. Um, that's just, that kind of thing has been considered off the table. So even though, yes, it looks like um, there's really valuable knowledge there um, that we might really care about, it's seen as beyond the pale. So if that's beyond the pale, then, you know, it doesn't seem too, too much of a leap to say that like destroying the planet is going to be off, um, the, off, off the table as an option. But, but, but notice that it's somewhat arbitrary, right? Like it's not that it's clear why, you know, um, ruling out the Harry Harlow case, you know, the primate experiments, you know, why that should be the, true. It just, it's just now dogma that we, we don't do that kind of stuff. And so um, I think it's really unclear what to say about the value of knowledge, uh, what, what the commitments of the scientific community are to the value of knowledge that would get exactly the distribution of judgments that they would like to get with respect to which kinds of things will and won't be justified. So I, I, I think there is a valuable criticism there and it's just tricky to, 
make it precise given the way the culture of the place is changing. One of the ways in which people engage with animals is by having them as pets. Um, uh, and, and I wonder what our obligations are on this front. So you can imagine someone who sort of says, uh, I just think it's so great to have a cute little baby kitten, but as soon as they get to a certain age, I want nothing to do with them. And they just, you know, drown them in a bag and then they keep going to adopt little baby kittens. We might think poorly of that person. Um, I think what's interesting is often people have these funny intuitions around around animals. And I think you're right to point out that particular animals seem to be treated quite differently. So, you know, if you said to someone, you know, how do you feel about having a steak? They say, oh, well, it sounds delicious. Said, so how do you feel like having a steak from a dog? And they'd say, that's completely immoral. You can't do that. And I said, but there's a cultural practice in certain places where, you know, dogs are bred for food. And they're not that different in nature to, let's say, pigs in terms of their levels of intelligence or ability to suffer. But there appears to be different standards that we have. I mean, the other one is, think about the immense outrage that happens when a lion is killed by a hunter and they sort of stand on top of the, the dead lion with a, with a rifle up and we say, this person has done something deeply immoral. And we said, well, well, why? You know, is it because lions are these rare, majestic creatures? Um, would you feel differently if it was a buffalo? And, you know, it's also a big, majestic thing, but there's tons of buffalo. Um, so I wonder about this. In other words, the way we relate to animals seems to be slightly arbitrary. Um, are there some good principles we could use to work out what the side constraints are, what, what governs our relationships with them? On the one hand, I'm very sympathetic to this kind of species comparison and just say, oh, that, you know, um, dogs and pigs roughly comparable in intelligence. And so, you know, whatever we are judge that it's okay to do to a pig, we should also say that it's okay to do it to a dog, et cetera. And I, on, on some level, something like that has to be right. There are certainly people out there, um, you know, abolitionists who think that it's just wrong for us to be using animals, period. Right, like inherently, and that can even companion animals involve a kind of exploitative use, because um, you know, even the sort of the best companion animal guardian uh, who would not want to be framed as an owner because animals are not property, et cetera. That that you know, people who have that kind of view might still say, well, you know, they may not actually be providing what's optimal for that being. They're compromising that individual's welfare in various ways because they want to live in an urban environment and, you know, live in an apartment. And so that means that the animal has to live in this apartment, even if that's not best for the animal and so on and so forth. Right. And so there's some kind of exploitative use, you might say, in that kind of view. So, you know, there are those, these kinds of really radical critiques. Um, there are at the same time, these, you know, positions that you were describing, Mark, that suggest that, well, you know, we just need to have consistency across the board. It's, probably worth thinking about the incredible differences that we have in the way that we treat human beings and that some kinds of relationships do seem to create the permission to have very different uh, relationships with other human beings. So like, look, uh, not that you guys aren't great, but I would totally let you starve to save my kid. Um, and I wouldn't think twice about it. We could mess around with the cases a bunch um, but I'll bet we could find that actually I would do some pretty terrible things to other people or allow some pretty terrible things to happen to other people, even to prevent like much less bad things from happening to my kid, right? Not, we don't even have to get to the point of starvation. Um, I might be willing to trade, you know, your well-being for pretty minor benefits, um, at least if we're in the, at the level of allowing, right? What I will actually positively do or, or refrain from doing. You know, if that's right, 
And if we think that it's okay to have these kinds of relationships that like create in us an extraordinary devotion to the well-being of others, then you know maybe maybe companion animal sorts of relationships do create very different responsibilities to dogs than to pigs. Where, you know, maybe, maybe in the case of the pig, um, my duty is non-intervention, right? Just don't mess with him. Um, but maybe in the case of my dog, I have all these positive responsibilities to invest in his well-being and so on and so forth. And maybe if I own cats, which are obligate carnivores, maybe my responsibilities include like participating in the killing of other animals by buying, you know, by buying chicken from the grocery store and feeding it to my cat. Um, precisely because I'm in the kind of relationship with my cat that creates these like extraordinary responsibilities to do what's best for her, even if that means all sorts of negative things happening for other animals. You know, that's a messy, it's like an uncomfortable conclusion. And yet, unless we are sort of in the grip of a theory, which sounds sort of dismissive, but I'm going to say it anyway, because it's a podcast and nobody can be mad at me that much really about it. Um, but like, unless we're just like, oh, you know, I, I, I've i read, you know, I'm in the grip of some like simple version of act utilitarianism or like I'm a simple, you know, proponent of some kind of, um, you know, indiscriminate rights view or whatever. I think we have to recognize that like, oh, the way people construct their lives does place some constraints on the kinds of things that we think we can ask of each other when it comes to these, you know, the way that we relate to individuals with whom we have these most intimate relationships. For lots of people, companion animals are included in those relationships. And that makes the issue pretty messy. So Bob, um, so far, you've kind of taken a, an agnostic view on a lot of issues. Um, so you've said, well, uh, for any given strong position on, on a question, um, the opposite view has some um, plausibility. Um, I'd like to try and establish one claim uh, <laughs> that, that seems to me quite clear uh, and quite clearly correct. And it, it refers back to uh, previous discussions um, that you and Mark had about uh, putting shampoo in the bunny's eyes to protect um, the eyes of lots of children who will use the shampoo. Uh, now, now let's, let's put aside... Um, those kind of cases and just like solidify them, raise the stakes a bit. Okay, so we, we get to employ a tool that Mark and I love to employ, which is the trolley problem. So you've got this train chugging along on a track and if you do nothing, that train is gonna hit um, a human, a human person, right? And let's just assume this human person has nothing special or terrible about them. They're just an average Joe. And uh, you can pull the lever and uh, the train will swerve to the left onto a different track. And on that track is a certain number of animals. Um, and let's say those animals are, um, I, I think the type of species is gonna be very important for the case, but, uh, but let's just say for now that they're pigs, okay? Um, how many pigs would have to be on that track um, or below how many pigs would need to be on that track for you to flip that switch? It seems to me like if it was one pig versus the one person on the track, if you do nothing, you should switch, you should switch the, you should pull that lever, you should switch the train's trajectory. And that seems clear to me, right? So if it's one to one, I think everyone ag would agree, the consequentialists, the deontologists, everyone would agree that that human life is more valuable. 
Now we become, you know, we pile up the pigs. There's two, there's three, there's four, there's 10, there's 30, there's 100. Maybe at some point uh, someone says, okay, you don't kill all those pigs to save one person. I'm not sure. Maybe some people would say you kill all the pigs in the world. I don't know. Um, but, but the point is, it seems clear to me that on the one-to-one -one case, the human is more valuable, both for the consequentialist and for the deontologist. So I wanted to see whether you could squirm out of that, that claim. I wanted to see whether you could find a way to fence at that issue. So I actually, you know, when it comes to something like the putting, you know, dripping the shampoo into the bunny's eyes, the Dre's test, um, you know, I don't think that that's justified. And, um, but not because I think, oh, I can point to some particular theory that implies that. I just think, hey, look, when we think systematically about the trade-offs that, that we're discussing here, we don't actually find um, reasons that are weighty enough to, to justify that kind of harm imposed on, on non-human animals. So it's not that I'm averse to coming down ever. It's just that I don't want to come down typically because I think some particular theory implies it. Um, I want to come down on some more holistic basis that looks at a wide range of reasons that might be linked to various theories, but that are not necessarily um, invoked because they happen to be uh, falling out of some particular theory. So that's the first thing to say. Second thing to say is there's a ton of empirical work on this in terms of the trolley problem that you've mentioned, um, in terms of the attitudes that people have. And it is actually really interesting to look at the distribution and it's incredibly diverse. So um, you do get people who have the lexical priority view. In other words, humans trump animals in all cases, it doesn't matter what, right? And you have people who the numbers trump from the beginning. So yeah, they might say in the one-to-one -one case, um, you know, humans win over animals, but as soon as it's two to one, you know, animals win, you, you get people like that. Um, and, and, the, and the distribution just shows how fraught our relationship with animals is. We just, we don't know how to think about them. And there's just in, intense disagreement. What you don't find, um, at least in those studies, but it's because they're not designed to find this out, is people who say flip a coin. Um, but you know, there are people who have defended views that imply that. So, you know, Paul Taylor famously had this view that, you know, um, the idea that particular capacities of human beings make them more morally important, such that they have more to lose or whatever. He just rejects that whole sort of approach and says, no, look, there's there's only the good for each individual as a member of its kind. And there's no comparing them, you know? Um, there's just, you know, the distinctly human way of being and the distinctly Venus flytrap way of being and the distinctly, you know, um, you know, river otter way of being. And that, that's just all there is to it. Like, you know, we, we shouldn't be making any of these uh, sorts of comparisons. So that there are at least views that, that have the implication that's a toss up from moment one. Um, but now to actually come to it, because you want to know what I think about these kinds of cases. I mean, I, you know, um, I share basically the intuition that you said, right? So, I mean, I'm, I find myself very sympathetic to that. Students have a very hard time distinguishing between what I would do and what I think I should do. Um, 
because often we're judging the one based on the feeling of the other, you know? I'm pretty sure that what I would do is this. And so since I always think I do the right thing, I, what I should must do therefore <laughs> is that, right? And, and I am often very suspicious in myself. I don't think this is just, a, I don't think students are mistaken or weird in doing this. I think they're doing something totally reasonable. When you put these hard cases in front of them, they're sorting through it based on, you know, this, this really, you know, fuzzy heuristic, but the only one they have of, of trying to think about how they would try to navigate that situation. And when I think about how I would try to navigate that situation, I think, well, yeah, you know, one-to-one, -one, I, I save the human. Um, and then as the number of pigs go up, I get more and more uncomfortable. And at some point, probably a, an arbitrary point that might vary from the times you put me through this, um, I, maybe I pull for pigs. But that actually doesn't give me much confidence that that's the right course of action. Um, because I do sometimes think like, yeah, I, I can totally get myself in the mindset of the lexical priority, humans always win sort of view. And that, you know, even when you have, you know, one quintillion pigs, you know, you save the person. So I, I, I sort of hold out the possibility of, this sort of massive moral uncertainty that does make it very hard for me to come down in favor of particular conclusions. And that to go back, you know, way earlier in the conversation, part of why I like this vary in the weeds, look at the details, focus on the relationships, understand the historical context, try to map out, you know, who's done what and why and what the incentives are is precisely because as you know, I, I used to work in modal epistemology, so I, I like really abstract stuff. But like as it gets more abstract, as philosophy gets more abstract, as ethics gets more abstract, I become sort of my confidence just plummets, you know, in particular cases. I think I can sort my way through the issues and see what makes most sense. And I can sort of feel like I'm balancing the trade-offs correctly. But actually, when you give me these pure cases, but you're supposed to simplify things by isolating the relevant, uh, the morally relevant considerations. My actual response is to say, oh, but at that level of abstraction, anything could be true and I have no idea what to think, you know? Um, we've like gone so far out that, that rather than being more confident, I'm, I'm more uncertain. That of course is not a thing that, um, makes me super comfortable in lots of discussions uh, of analytic ethics, uh, even though I'm someone who like my whole career is doing analytic animal ethics. Um, but that's just nevertheless the way it works. You might say that we can have certain moral intuitions about cases. Um, would any of those make you want to legislate to protect animal rights in a certain way? So if I said to you, you've got the power to regulate, you know, uh, how we treat animals in zoos, um, in uh, in slaughterhouses, at you know, uh, in medical testing labs, are there certain laws that you would necessarily put in place? Well, yeah, I mean, if I'm czar for the day, and I just get to you know remake the world in my image, um, yeah, things go pretty well for animals in that scenario. Uh, you know, I, I would, I would certainly want to, um, you know, I mean, very little farming would end up passing the test of the kinds of animal welfare laws that I would want to put on the books. Um, most animal um, 
use activities where animals are used for entertainment or sport or whatever would probably be regulated out of existence. Um, you know, my views are in general, my personal views are generally very, very pro-animal. But then there's another matter of arguing for those views. And uh, that's a lot harder. And I think that, you know, when I think about, well, what do I think I could justify to a diverse public insofar as you think that that kind of social legitimacy is important? Or what kind of um, regulations do I think would be both maximally good for animals while being minimally burdensome on those who disagree or what have you, like those kinds of ways of thinking about the constraints? Well, then it's a lot harder to know, you know what to do. I mean, what I actually want in the short run um, in terms of very practical stuff would be for, you know, this is in the US, you know, obviously you have to go country by country, but if we just got the Animal Welfare Act, Animal Welfare Act to genuinely be a universal piece of animal welfare legislation and not one that just protects a very narrow subset of animals, um, you know, that would really radically change the farming industry. That would be a huge um, bit of progress, I think, for animals. Um, you know, and if we tightened the regulatory frameworks so that we just took what's common in research facilities and expanded that, um, I think that would be a really good thing. So where you can replace animals, replace them. Where you can reduce the numbers, reduce them. Where you can refine the methods, refine them. Um, and if that was uh, enforced by law, that would be a massive, massive improvement. So those kinds of two things, um, generalizing some laws we've already got, which are bad, I mean, they're inadequate even as they are, but if generalized would be a lot better. And taking existing ethical frameworks that people are willing to take seriously in research and generalizing those, um, that would be a stunning accomplishment for animals. I think that would, that's sort of almost more than I can imagine ever being accomplished, but it would be great, you know. Well, I want to say this has been a delightful conversation. Uh, we've really covered a lot of ground. And what I, I particularly like is the humbleness in your approach, which is to say these things are much more complicated than we often admit. And we need to be sensitive to the information. We need to be able to revise our minds. We ought not to be too ideological in our theoretical commitments. And I think that's a very important approach to these kinds of difficult questions. Thanks. I uh, appreciate that. And I've really enjoyed the conversation too. I mean, I should say, um, you know, the risk of being someone like me is that you fall into the trap of inaction. So, uh, you know, hopefully I can serve as a valuable corrective. Uh, but at the end of the day, of course, it'd be really good if we made things better for animals. Uh, so, so this is a fine line that someone like me has to walk. And, and I'm not sure that I personally always walk it as well as I should, but, but I hope that I can be someone who both complicates the story while still saying these issues are important enough to take seriously and to do something about.